0: following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Good morning again. I'm Derek. If I haven't met you, I look forward to meeting you. Uh, we, in, in next weekend, next Sunday... Um, we are going to have a really fun special service where Mike Capricorn is installed as assistant pastor here. And then the Sunday after that, actually, we'll be starting a new series on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. But today, we are going to look at relationships. We're going to talk about being made for relationships, and we're going to look at some verses, a couple of little chunks from Genesis 1 and 2. Before we read, I want to just um, give you, if if you've never really studied Genesis before, actually reading Genesis 1 and 2 can be a little confusing because it looks like there's two creation accounts. You have the creation account given in Genesis 1, and then it feels like it starts over again in Genesis 2, but it's not two creation accounts. It's one account. Genesis 1 is zoomed out. Genesis 2 is zoomed in right? So, if somebody told you if you're traveling from Kansas to California, they might say you're going to drive west and you're going to cross some mountains. That's the big picture. But you also might want a smaller, zoomed-in picture about just what crossing those mountains might look like, and that's what Genesis 2 gives us about the creation of mankind. So, just a little bit of a note as you're listening. All right, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis 2. Chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we'll skip over a little bit as well. It's also on the screen above if you'd like to follow along there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then skipping over to verse 26 of chapter 1. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Then skipping over to, verse, to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and they brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask uh, that you would open our hearts today. Open our eyes that are oftentimes blind to what you have shown us. Open our ears that are oftentimes deaf to what you have to say to us. And Lord, soften us so that we might hear your word to us this morning. And Lord, we might know your grace. And in knowing your grace and your love and your mercy, we might desire to follow you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a... um, it was an article or, or a publication actually that came out this year from the, department, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it starts actually with a letter from the Surgeon General. And this is what the U.S. Surgeon General has to say. When I first took office as Surgeon General in 2014, I didn't view loneliness as a public health concern, but that was before I embarked on a cross-country listening tour where I heard stories from my fellow Americans that surprised me. People began to tell me that they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Even when they couldn't put their finger on the word lonely, time and time again, people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds from every corner of the country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself, or if I disappear tomorrow, no one will even notice. And it was a light bulb moment for me, Social disconnection was far more common than I had realized. In recent years, about one in two Americans reported experiencing loneliness, and that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, and support systems, exacerbating loneliness and isolation. Loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. Listen to this. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it's even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, our workplaces, our civic organizations where performance, productivity and engagement are all diminished. That is what the highest ranking health official in our country has to say about loneliness. Of course, it's not just coming kind of from the scientific world. You can see the problem of loneliness, even as it comes in our popular media, right? Many movies, and I'm not going to list them all, but from kids' movies like WALL-E, which opens on a solitary robot longing for connection with someone else, to something like Castaway, which has Tom Hanks so lonely that he, you know, develops a way too intimate relationship with a volleyball. You know, we know it, whether it's from science or media, we feel it. And unfortunately, I think many of us even feel it very personally. We know it on a personal level, what it feels like to be disconnected, what it feels like to be alone, what it feels like to, to not have people around you. We know at our hearts those words of Genesis 2.18, don't we? That it's not good for man to be alone. But friends, this is not the way that God has created things to be. In fact, what the Bible tells us from its very first pages is that we were made for relationships. We were created for relationships. And we know that, first of all, because we were created by a relational God. That's the first thing that we see, actually, in the Bible, is that we, human beings, were created by a relational God. Now, what do I mean by that, and where am I getting that? Well, listen again, if you will, with me to verse to Genesis 126. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Did you pick up on that when I read it the first time? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We get plural pronouns. And by the way, those plural pronouns are not there to create gender ambiguity, they are there because we're talking about plurality. God Himself actually is a plurality. This is one of the places where we go to talk about actually the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That God himself is a relational creature because he himself, in some way that is so hard for us to get our heads around, is a communal God. And that community of the Trinity is a community that exists in love. Jesus actually says in John 17 that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in for just a second. The Father, which, by the way, is a relational word. If we're going to call God Father, we know He is a relational being. And since before the foundation of the world, for time, eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been living together in a loving relationship. And what we actually see in creation is the overflow of that loving relationship that spills out into the creation of the cosmos and the creation of mankind. Okay, that's what we're actually witnessing when we read Genesis 1. That the Trinity, Himself, a loving creation, is so full and overflowing in love that is spilling out into creation. That God is actually overflowing in His relational capacity and love, and so He creates the world and He creates mankind. My good friend Ben Haley, who some of you know, he actually spoke at our church retreat last year, just got back from an amazing fishing trip with Frank Childress. If you want to see some pictures of some fish, you need to go talk to Frank. Listening to both of them talk about this trip is incredible. There was a time where Ben texted me and he said, we caught 50 fish today before lunch. It was an incredible amount, and abundance of fish. But also one of the things that's really fascinating, they were in Bolivia on a river, a river that's a tributary of the Amazon. He said, you know, you can only fish this river for four months a year. And you can only fish the river for four months a year because it's, you can only navigate the river for four months a year. Because in the rainy season, it floods. And not only does the river flood, but literally the jungle floods. The river overflows its banks so much that the land cannot keep up with it and the entirety of the jungle becomes a river. It is overflowing. And that's the kind of picture, actually, that we open the Bible with, is that Father, Son, and Spirit together, overflowing in love, create mankind. Friends, we are created by a relational God who exists in a loving relationship with Himself. You know, this this was not the case for other ancient gods. In fact, um, when I was in middle school, one of the things I loved was Greek mythology. And I loved Greek mythology. I think the reason I loved it the most is because the Greek gods were always fighting, and they were fighting somebody, right? Whether it was the titans or the giants, you know, to kind of take over Olympus, or it was themselves. They were always fighting against themselves because they are just kind of petty and jealous. The Greeks created gods that looked a lot like human beings. They looked around at the world and they said, you know what? Humanity is pretty petty, pretty jealous. We fight a lot. Maybe that's what our gods are like. And so we got these gods in Greek mythology that acted a lot like petty little humans, and they got mad at each other, and they fought each other all the time. How different is the picture that we get of the Lord in Genesis 1? That He is overflowing in love amongst the persons of the Trinity, and it is out of that overflow of love that humanity is created. See, we we are created for relationships first and foremost because we are created by a relational God. Secondly, though, God has created us to be made for relationship with one another. We were made for relationship with one another. Go back, actually, to that same verse that we just looked at. Listen again to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. We not only get plural pronouns for God, but we actually get a plural pronoun for mankind. Let them Did you notice that? And then if you'll fast forward to verse 27, the next verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In fact, if you're looking at your own Bible, my guess is those words in verse 27 are set off in some way. It looks like they're they're kind of separate. They look more like poetry. And the reason is because the language in Hebrew is very structured. It is almost poetic-like. And this would have been the way that a Hebrew writer, through repetition, through structure, through the rhythmic language that you could even pick up in English, would have been able to, would have been saying to his audience, hey, stop, listen here, this is super important. We've been talking about the creation of the cosmos, and we've been talking about God creating it, and now through this structured, repetitious language, the writer, the author of Genesis is saying, slow down because I want you to hear the most important part. And the most important part is the creation of mankind, the pinnacle of all creation. And what does God create in the pinnacle of creation? At the highest point of the narrative of creation, of the world, of the cosmos, He creates a relationship. He creates a community. He creates a togetherness, male and female together. There is this. Um, <laughs> there is this movie that I saw a long time ago. I don't even remember the name of the movie. Like it's one of those movies, like Rutger Hauer was starring in, and it's you know you can find it probably beginning at about 11 p.m. on TBS someday. You know it's not really an A-list movie, okay? But it made an impact on me as a kid because um, it had this really cool just kind of thing about it. It was a movie about a prison without walls. And this prison without any walls, the way that they kept actually the prisoners together is that they all wore these collars, these electronic collars that were exploding collars. It's kind of gross. And you had a partner, and if you got too far away from your partner, both of your collars would explode. But you didn't know who your partner was, so everybody kind of had to gather together. Right? Pretty cool premise for a movie. And actually, pretty helpful image, I think, in helping us understand why we were created for each other. And here's why. Is that God has made us for each other not simply to decrease loneliness, although that is a great byproduct, but actually to increase holiness. You get that? Not just to decrease loneliness, but to increase holiness. What I mean is that our communal nature, relationships, other people are an enormous part of your discipleship. There is this idea in spirituality in general that the way that I become more holy is that I go off somewhere all by myself and I kind of make this holiness thing happen all by myself. Listen, there can be some really beneficial aspects of solitude and silence. But the idea that we are going to go and find actually the greatest connection with the Lord and find actually our sanctification and actually be made more holy just on our own is just not biblical. God has made us to be drawn near to Him through our relationships with others. Paul Tripp says it this way, and I love this phrase, your walk with God is a community project. Your walk with God is a community project. And isn't it true that so oftentimes when life gets hard, it's the times that we want to detach? I'm, I'm feeling maybe the weight of my own guilt, or I'm sad, or there's brokenness in my life or my family, and I don't know what to do with it, and I don't know how to handle it, and I don't want to be around other people, and so I detach and I remove myself from community. But friends, the truth is we need each other just like those guys in that terrible movie, right? Is that when we detach from one another, it's actually more dangerous for us. We are created to grow closer to the Lord together. So here's just a little specific application. How do we do that? I've got actually five words for us, and they're normal words. Let's see if you can remember these. They'll be up on the screen as well. You ready? Here's our five words, eat, talk, play, pray, and study together. Get that? Eat, talk, pray, play, and study together. Now, that covers most of life, doesn't it? Eating together is actually an intimate experience to gather together, and to eat is actually the sharing of something very basic in humanity, and it's the sharing of your life together. To talk with one another, right, in regular ways and also in real and deep ways, right, is the sharing of who you are with another person. To pray together, to approach God together, to spend time enjoying one another together, to play, whether that's a game or sports or simply just enjoying one another's company. And to study, to gather around God's Word and to open up His Word and say, what does God's Word have to say for us this morning? And, you know, there are multiple ways that you can do that. We can do that one-on-one. You can do all of those things one-on-one, gathering with another person to have lunch or dinner, to study the Bible together, to pray in a one-on-one relationship, and that's really important. And we do it as we gather in large groups, right? That's actually what we're doing right now. Every Sunday when we gather in worship, we are doing all of those things. We're going to eat from God's table We're praying together with Him. We're reading and studying together as we open up His Word. We're even singing and rejoicing in some ways, playing together and fellowshipping with one another. But it also happens very specifically when we gather in small groups. In fact, I believe that God has wired us to draw near to Him in small groups, so that he actually begins to form and shape us in his image through the relationships that we have with each other as we come and we gather together around his word, as we pray, as we eat, as we talk, as we gather and do all those things. And you heard Bonnie talk about a lot of those things that are coming up. We've got women's groups. We've got men's groups, and let me just highlight, we have our community groups that are starting very soon, in just a couple of weeks. There is a banner right over there with a map and all of them listed, and we would love, we talk about this actually as a session, as the elders of the church, we would love for all of the regulars in our church to be connected in some sort of small group, because we think that it is one of the best ways that you're going to go grow close to Jesus, Community groups are an easy one to do, but jump into any small group, be a part of any of the one, those that we offer, because we think that they are beneficial for you. All right, let's move on to the third and final thing. We see that not only has God is God a relational God Himself, and that we are made from relationship for relationship uh, with each other, but also we were made for a relationship with God first and foremost. Friends, let me just say that um, none of the things that we've actually talked about, whether that is a marriage or a friendship or a small group, (laughs) they will all eventually begin to erode if they are not gathered around a relationship with the Lord. It is first and foremost and primarily the relationship that we were created for. We were created for our Lord, to have an intimate relationship with Him. In fact, there's an interesting some wording going on here at the end of chapter 2. Listen again, verse 24, this is how chapter 2 ends. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, we're reading here in Genesis about marriage, about man and woman holding fast to one another. If you've got the old King James, maybe you remember the word cleave. Leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. But that word in Hebrew is actually used all throughout Deuteronomy as well. That word is repeated in Deuteronomy, and it's used in the context of God's people holding fast to the Lord. That God's people, just like a faithful spouse, are meant to hold fast to the Lord who has married himself to them. In fact, the way that the New Testament describes the church is the bride of Christ that Jesus has promised, vowed Himself, bound Himself, covenanted Himself to us like a husband does for a wife, and that we, in response, are called to hold fast. For God's people in the Old Testament, it was to leave the gods of Egypt and to cleave or hold fast to the Lord. For us, it's so many of the different idols that we wrestle with in our hearts every day, to leave them and to hold fast to the Lord. But if you keep reading, actually, you begin to find the really good parts. You begin to find, actually, the motivation for that holding fast. Let's keep going. Verse 25, we get this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's how we finish uh, the, chapter 2 and the discussion of the creation of mankind, is that they were naked and unashamed. <clears throat> now, when, when Moses says naked, I don't believe he's just talking about physical nakedness. I think he is actually talking about wholeness of openness and transparency, right? So the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were both transparent before one another and before the Lord. They stood in a relationship God, with God that, and with each other that was without shame. They were made perfect, and their relationship with God and their relationship with one another was perfect, and they were unashamed. But what happens actually in the next chapter? In chapter 3, we actually see the, the, um, the account of the fall of mankind. And listen what happens in chapter 3. We read this in verse 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Did you hear the change there? No longer are the man and the woman naked and unashamed. They now are trying to deal with their shame by covering themselves and hiding from God. And that, friends, is the state of humanity. We, in our sin stand as those who now have to deal with this thing called shame. And we deal with shame in many, many ways, right? We can deal with the own guilt and shame of who we are, who we know ourselves to be when we look ourselves in the mirror and we're actually honest with ourselves. It's with our own actions, our own thoughts, our own motivations. And here's what's so insidious as well about shame is that so oftentimes even the actions of others create shame in us. This is what is terrible actually about uh, especially sexual violence is that victims of sexual violence will oftentimes feel shame themselves even though they've done nothing wrong. They will bear that weight of shame and try to carry it their whole lives. And so what we have with the brokenness of the world that Adam and Eve in in falling into sinfulness has, has, has borne us into a state of brokenness such that we deal with our own shame and we even deal with shame of the sin of others. And how do we normally deal with it? It's usually just like Adam and Eve dealt with it, isn't it? We either try to cover it or we try to run away. We cover ourselves or we hide from the Lord. And we cover ourselves so oftentimes by just pretending. Let's just pretend that everything's okay. Let's just kind of pretend, at least in public, like everything is all right. Let's do a lot of stuff. So that maybe at least others, and maybe even in some miraculous way, God might think that I'm actually not who I know that I am. Or we hide. We run away. Friends, we are so oftentimes running to these two things, to pretend and to hide. In fact, I would say this, if you want to ruin your relationship with the Lord, those are two really good things to start doing. Because pretending and hiding will ruin any relationship, whether it's with your wife or your husband or your friends or your brother or sister or with the Lord. But, of course, that's not the end of the story, is it? Because Genesis gives us some incredible hope for what the rest of the Bible is about. In fact, if you'll kind of skip to the end of Genesis chapter 3, you see what happens and what the Lord actually does for Adam and Eve. This is what we read in chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. See, God looked at Adam and Eve. He knew their shame. He saw their attempts to cover themselves and to hide from him. And instead of just casting them out, what he did was he actually covered them. God, by his own provision, covered their shame. In fact, it's important, I think, even to see that these are animal skins. Something had to die for God to cover their shame. And as we fast forward then into the New Testament, what we see then as we open up the pages of the New Testament and see Jesus, who begins to call himself not just the Messiah, but actually the Lamb of God, the the, the Passover Lamb who was sacrificed… We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We actually see Jesus in the passion narratives shamed publicly, beaten, mocked, crucified, by the way, naked, so that he would actually be shamed. And friends, here's the beautiful news of this. And if you've never heard this before, please pay attention now. Jesus took on shame so that He might take on our shame, so that He might cover our shame with His righteousness. Jesus was God's provision to cover our shame so that we might not have to go through this terrible process of hiding and pretending anymore, so that we might be found in Him, so that we might be covered. What better motivation is there in the world than that. The love that this loving God overflowing in love has poured out not only in creation, but in redemption, in coming to us to cover our shame. Again, if you've never heard those words, come and find me afterwards, and let's talk about it. And if that is your hope, then there is no better motivation to hold fast to cleave to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a great word to be able to, (laughs) how to address you in prayer as Father, loving and relational, who in the incredible glory of Trinitarian love has overflown in love to create and to redeem And Lord, we are a part of that overflow. We are swept up in that flood. That you have covered our shame. You have covered our sin. You have made made a hiding place for us that we might come and hide ourselves in you. Lord, I pray that we would, by the power of your Spirit, do that even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.